0: This week on take Me Out.
1: Does it have like the printed gold lettering that says this is a promo copy? It might. I'd have to go find the CD. You're asking okay. a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I don't want to ask too much.
0: I you. mean, it's it's like on the other side of this room. Tim and Jay Review, Prize by Wanderlust. Turn it up.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host Tim Menichi, and joining me, as always, Mister Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 180, it's our fourth season, 180, and we are taking a break this week from requested reviews to uh, tackle one of your requested reviews that you did not pay for. I want to point that out. <laughs> Um, I pay enough. You do pay enough. This is a band that you suggested. Well, I'm gonna just toss it to you, Jay. Tell us about the band that you suggested and the album that you suggested for this week.
0: Uh, I can't tell you a whole lot about the band. I can tell you about the record. Um, mm-hmm. the band is called Wanderlust. The album's called Prize. Where did I get this? Jeez, I think it was a um, it was bought. I think used, but maybe a pre like one of those uh, you know, promotional copies that you can pick up used.
1: Does it have like the printed gold lettering that says this is a promo copy?
0: It might. I would have to go find the CD. You're asking a lot.
1: Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to ask too much. Of I mean, you. it's
0: it's like on the other
1: side of this room, which would be well, Jade. Then you stay right where you are. Right. I could get a cramp or something.
0: I, you know, I don't know why, but I, I can only assume I bought it based on the name and the album cover, looking like something I would like. Other than that, I don't know anything about the band. I listened to it a ton uh, when I got it. Probably for a good uh, two, three years consistently uh, i to this record. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't ever remember the band doing anything. This is obviously pre-internet, or at least pre-internet for me. So um, I don't remember the band ever doing anything again or any other releases. So um, that's really
1: all I know. Well, luckily, Jay, I have all that information in the history of the band.
0: History of the band.
1: So Wanderlust formed in Philadelphia in 1992. The lineup of Scott Sachs on vocals and guitar. Rob Bonfiglio on vocals and guitar. Mark Levin, a.k.a. Mark Gettin, on bass. And Jim Cavanaugh on drums. I don't know why Mark Levin went by a.k.a. Mark Gettin. Not sure about that, but that's what Wikipedia says. So... In 1994, two years after forming, they were recording a four-song demo at Tongue & Groove Studios in Philadelphia. The band signed, while they were recording their demo, to RCA, and RCA said, uh, we'd like a full-length album, please. So they uh, recorded a full-length, which is Prize, released in April of 1995. The band returned to the studio in 1997 to record a second album, but they were dropped by RCA. And eventually, that record was released, uh, self-titled, on Not Lame Records. That sent the band off in different directions. They went and... and We'll get into where they went after this, but um, they went off in different directions. And then in the fall of 2001, lead singer uh, Scott Sachs sent uh, his writing partner, Rob Amfiglio, an instrumental. They started writing uh, a new record, and... Uh, that was completed in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, over a three-day period. They wrote and recorded the record. Um, they then signed to Zip Records, and the CD, uh, well, the album came out September 25th, 2012, digital format, so an MP3 format. And that's the uh, that's the basic history of uh, Wanderlust. And uh, of course, if you want to suggest an album. You can head on over to request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. So, I mentioned that the band went off in different directions. Uh, in our Facebook feedback, which we got a one but one very long uh, note from Joe Royland, uh, he mentioned that uh, he mentioned what, what ended up happening to one of the members of the band. So, um, he said, Absolutely love that album, one of the most overlooked albums of 1995, in my humble opinion. Great power pop. With Echoes to Past in Echoes to the Past in Big Star and the Raspberries, but also more modern sounds of the posies in Places too. I Walked got a fair amount of airplay, but it's a shame nothing else did, as there's a number any number of great songs to be found in this album. Before We Fade was the second single off the album, but I don't think it made it on the radio. Some additional favorites are Brand New Plan, Stage Name, both of which have some great lyrics. Coffee in the Kitchen, Wanna Feel New, and Flash and Shadow ends the album on a nice mellow note. Some great guitar playing, courtesy of Bob, Bob Amfiglio. Uh, lead singer, songwriter Scott Sachs, would have a cool solo song, Summertime, uh, written uh, un- under the band name Bachelor Number 1, on the American Pie soundtrack in 1999. So that's what he did after Wonderlost separated. He wrote a song that ended up on the American Pie soundtrack. Looking forward to hearing the show on this one. I've gone back since and been spinning this album daily since I saw The Post. Still enjoying the album as much as ever. Need to get around to buying the Reunion album they did in 2012, but that's only because they never released it as an actual CD. That was Joe's information on this particular, or feedback on this particular uh, record. So let's talk about what we liked and uh, what we didn't like, Jay. And this for you, this will be a revisitation and for me, this is a brand new record, because I, I had never heard of uh, Wanderlust uh, prior to this. I think this was on your list of like things I might want to do at some point way back in the day. Um, and we're finally getting around to it. So,
0: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this is going to be a tough record for me, because I know it so well. It's very, very difficult for me to, I don't know, separate and view it on a critical track-by-track track or... I don't know. It's just difficult for me to even break it down. Like, uh so you're gonna need to go first, and I'll follow
1: I'll, your lead. I'll go first. So I'm gonna talk about uh one thing that I liked, and then I'll toss it over to you. So we've covered. We I think we've actually covered a lot more power pop on this show than I ever expected. Yeah. You don't think of the '90s as being very power pop heavy? You mm-hmm. think of it as as sort of the underground music almost of the '90s with Jellyfish and. You know, Velvet Crush, and you know the Posies have some nods to power pop, and uh, I think probably the most successful power pop was from Matthew Sweet in the '90s, um, with a little bit, I think maybe on the first Weezer record. There's some, I guess, you, some, some of that could be considered power pop. Sure. Um, but there's a there's a lot of I guess what I would say like I guess indie or underground bands that were actually uh, doing this under, you know, under the radar of mainstream, uh, radio. And it's interesting and it's fun to find because they, a lot of these bands, their power pop sound diverges a little bit from each other. And I think what I heard a lot, I think the posies is a good, uh, mention in terms of what Joe said. I mean, obviously you hear some of the classic power pop, uh, influences, um, in terms of, you can, you can hear like the, like, like he said, the, j- the raspberries and, I, you hear a little jellyfish here. You hear some big star. What I actually heard, and I and I kind of like this, was not necessarily a power pop band, but when they they add a, they sometimes they have a little bit of twang, mm-hmm. which is weird from a band from Philadelphia. But I hear some mid era Jayhawks, yep. some like Tomorrow the Green Grass, and even some Sound of Lies, which I understand was basically parallel time frame. So it's not like they were ripping them off or anything like that. But I just hear that sort of midwestern twang on songs like prize and i really like the closing track flash and shadow has that um this acoustic intro and then there's like this big bombastic uh intro introduction of the guitars and the guitar and there's like there's a piano part and then they go into this slide guitar part which is real cool and very reminiscent of the jayhawks that slide part and shadow,
0: everything is black and green. Everything is shoots and ladders, Never everything's anything in between. Everything is us and
1: I liked hearing that element in a power pop band of a little bit of twang, a little bit of of um, Midwestern alternative country, I guess you'd say, Um, which, you know, maybe these guys, while they were also listening to Big Star and the Raspberries, were picking up an Uncle Tupelo record or an early Jayhawks record because those those sounds creep in very subtly um, from time to time. And I like hearing those that aspect of the band about you yeah
0: absolutely that is something that i didn't remember about the band um my memory of them before going back and revisiting of it that it was a little blander than it actually is um i uh i thought of it i expected it to be kind of i don't know jim blossoms or counting crows-ish i was really pleasantly surprised to to see how well it holds up and the Jayhawks was definitely a band that came to mind um, upon revisiting it. It almost set uh, set the stage, perhaps, for me to appreciate "Sound of Lies" as much as I do by the Jayhawks. Mm-hmm. Maybe more so than any of their other records, um, which I know is a it's an odd you know it's kind of a an odd record for the Jayhawks and kind of polarizing. But um, I think this album, which came out a year or two before it, may have kind of primed me to appreciate The Sound of Lies Uh, and I hadn't realized that until I went back and revisited this Um, because it doesn't have that twang but it's also got a there's moments of a darkness um, to it but then there's they can shift from kind of being contemplative and a little dark to full on swagger you know and um, almost songs that kind of have a a strut to them, almost, you know, there's definitely these shifts in attitude, um, that are very cool on this record. And I did not remember particularly clearly when I thought back, um, to it. So I'd say the, the biggest thing that I liked about it upon revisiting was just the attitude that it has. Um, Mm -hmm. it's definitely got a very tangible vibe, uh, you can feel that they recorded these songs together um, as a band, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. I agree with you. There is a very sort of unique vibe in terms of their subtle 60s guitar licks here and there. Uh, I'm thinking of, like, the intro to, like, Coffee in the Kitchen has this, like, really cool um, – he's doing, like, this lead part that it's – totally reminds me of like a almost like a cream or, or something like song you know what I mean like it's got this like ha- big riff yeah the he's bands. playing yeah those the big bends. exactly yeah. but uh, very cool but they're able to integrate that into sort of a very 90s power pop that you know at times it reminds me of the posies I even hear on some of the quieter moments like on I Walked or Deepest Blue they get into some like almost like Toad mm-hmm. the Wet Sprocket territory and it's the territory that I don't mind when they get a little mellow but they're still able to keep the, the harmonies going and make it pretty lush in terms of uh, the vocals. You know, if it was just, I think if it was just a single vocal and it was it was a little bit drier, I think it would be a little less interesting. But, you no, know, they're doing so much with doing the two vocals with uh, uh, Scott and, and, is it Rob or Bob? I forgot. Uh, Rob singing. And then I think they're both playing, I think I read that they're both playing Rickenbackers, which would make sense mm. because they're getting that birds-like, Sound on a lot of these songs. Yeah, I'm guessing they're not twelve-string Rickenbackers. I'm guessing they're probably playing six-string Rickenbackers. You um, can
0: see. Um, I actually, went, I went to look for the CD. I can't find it, but looking at the artwork um, on the computer, there is a Rickenbacker laying on the floor on the cover of the album. Okay, the white one, but I can't tell if it's a six or twelve. That's interesting. I never thought about that. That didn't hit me that that's what they were using.
1: And if you listen to a lot of the Bird stuff, and spe- specifically the the Roger McGuinn era, where you know the Eight Miles High, that kind of stuff. I mean, he's playing with a twelve string Rickenbacker, but there that weird twangy, you know, with and then they throw some overdrive on it. I mean, it, they get into that territory on like a Troubled Man, that kind of has a feel to it, um, and then you know, with them doing the harmonies the way the Birds would do harmonies too. I mean, that's just. Clearly, they. This is a band that clearly understands sort of power pop history and, and the various influences, but are really forging kind of their own unique little path, um, yeah. which is pretty cool, because there aren't a lot of bands you know, a lot of power pop bands are really good at writing those harmonies and stuff, but they can still sound derivative of the power pop bands that they're influenced by. And this band is able to take a lot of sort of interesting and different influences and put that together and come up with things that sound familiar, but without sounding uh, completely ripped off or, or borrowed from previous artists.
0: Yeah. There's uh, uh, that. That's why I need you to, to, to lead this, this review, because as I was listening back to it, uh, while it all sounds familiar, none of it sounds derivative. Um, I couldn't, there'd be moments I'd be like, oh, that reminds me of the Jayhawks. But because of the timing and stuff, you know, they were contemporaries or, or this came before some of that Jayhawk stuff and the posies. And, and it's like, I really felt like they're able to do Power Pop, they're able to do, you said like the Midwestern Twang, Roots Rock, they're able to do all of these um, things that, all these different genres, subgenres of rock that Usually, are either one-dimensional or very derivative, um, but they're able to kind of mix them all together to keep it interesting. You know, I think that, especially with with some of the power pop that we've reviewed here in the past, um, let's say um, Silver Sun. Mm-hmm. Our critique of that was essentially it's great, but you know, thinking back, I think it's kind of one-dimensional. Like they don't have a lot of room to go there. Um, This band can, it goes in all different kinds of directions, but it all sort of works. So they can kind of shift into a really hooky, power poppy kind of part, but then tune it down and, you know, kind of be somber or almost have moments of feeling almost shoegazy and then pop out of it again and do something real ragged. And I think that's why I like it as much as I do. It's all those twists and turns.
1: Yeah. And they're, and they're like most power pop songwriters they have a good grasp of dynamics they have a good grasp of playing around with tempos and and not necessarily time signatures but tempos and and where to make songs shift so that it creates the most impact on prize they start out in halftime which later Mm -hmm. reveals itself to be the chorus of the song They don't but they don't abuse it it's, the, it's something that they go to pretty quickly and then they get out of it uh, you know fairly quickly it's not something that you know a lot of bands that go to halftime will stick around it a little too long and it comes formulaic um, but they are able to do that in a you know fairly concise way and and overall the album is fairly concise too I mean these are you know three to four minute long songs and there's there's not a lot of fat on most of these tunes so And then the other one that I liked in terms of um, the dynamics is uh, Brand New Plan. Um, The song builds and it gets bigger towards the end, and there's almost this touch of like a sort of a Rick McCullum esque slide part at the end of that song Mm. that's got that, you know, that slightly out of tune but like not quite kind of guitar uh, slide lead, Um, but doing something melodic counter to the vocal that's. It's cool, and they don't do it a lot. And and that, besides that song, you know, most of the slide work and even the lead work is is much more I guess traditional. Whereas I think of McCollum as being sort of unique in the way that he delivers the slide in yeah. in a, in a lot of the songs. Um, but I like I like the way that they build a lot of the the tracks, um, especially on the back half of the record, where I think that they do a good job of. Now that's where the, that's where the record would start to like lose you if you mm-hmm. were and they do a good job of introducing something and then ratcheting it up so that you build your interest back within one song. So I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, there's some pretty um pretty crafty arranging going on here with most of these songs. They do a really good job with intros, setting mm-hmm. songs up. Do a really good job changing changing time, creating dynamics in interesting ways. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the best things about the record for me. And, and one of the key reasons why it holds up so well, I think another reason why it holds up so well is the production. I think it, you think it sounds, it still sounds great. Um, it, it's, it's timeless. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel like this, this could have come out anytime, you know? I, I mean, the music is, yeah, it's got a little bit of, but I don't know. I mean, I was gonna say almost it has a little bit of '90s kind of vibe to it. But I don't know if a band put this that record out now, it, it wouldn't. It would be totally appropriate. Um, I don't know. Yep. It, would, it would be a huge hit. But
1: the only song that sounds vaguely '90s to me is "Before We Fade" because it has that like that drum beat. It's like like on that back yeah. end of the of the of the drum beat. It kind of does that like do, 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 like thing that like a ton of bands did, um, but I like a that,
0: little, little bit of a Matthew Sweet kind of vibe to it.
1: And but I just like the, that they actually ratchet the guitars down for a lot of the beginning of the song and just go with the bass and the drums together. Mm-hmm. But that was that was one that sounded like okay, this could be this could be a nineties a, a very typical nineties yeah. track. That's, it doesn't sound as timeless as a lot of the other songs.
0: The guitar tones are so good on track record. Um, it's interesting that you you pointed out and figured out those Rickenbackers cuz that wasn't clear to me at first but now that I know that I can kind of I can kind of hear it so it make, makes sense. Okay.
1: Well, it was in the uh, if you go to All Music there's a review of this album and it's it's a glowing review of this record mm. but he mentions the twin Rickenbacker attack mm. of this band and then if you yeah. see the you know there's one on the cover so it makes sense.
0: I love the vocal. You know, it's a lot of range a lot of different sounds when you mix in the other voice and you do the harmonies there's a lot of um, variety there mm-hmm. it, it's it's almost like uh, you forget that say I don't know it's like there's so much in, in differences of in phrasing and it's it's in it's different in terms of um, I don't know it doesn't it doesn't feel like one person singing the record you know it's you don't get it all but it sounds cohesive right know, there's so many different approaches to the vocal that it's kind of hard to pinpoint like how the vocal sounds and what to expect, um, which would sometimes mean you know the album wouldn't hold together. But it holds together very well. Um, I just love the I love the variety in terms of that. I mean, I think the reason it holds together is because the production of everything else is so consistent. You know, the guitar sounds are are consistent, the drum sounds consistent, the bass sounds consistent. You can tell they did it together, um, but the different approaches on the vocal and the phrasings and how they use harmonies and then um, the twists and turns in some of the songs is is the variety aspect of the record Um, so it's really well put together in regards to that so you have enough consistency where it holds together but then you have enough variety where it's it stays interesting
1: well i i think one of the things that helps with with the vocal is that he doesn't like even though they might be singing over a chord progression he doesn't do the thing where he sings a line and then pauses and sings a line and then pauses. And right, right. Like he break he breaks up those melodies and comes up with ways to do them in a little bit more unique way. And each song, really, each song, he doesn't he doesn't get trapped in a particular vocal style. Like he'll sing higher or lower. Right, right. Uh, you know, based on the song and even based on the part of the song. Right. Because there's parts of songs where he's singing sort of high and almost uh, falsettoy. And then bringing it back down for like a chorus or something like that, or he's singing like I mentioned. And um, uh, before we fade, he's singing almost in like a different register, like he's singing in like this higher, nasally sort of part for the vol- right. for the chorus. I mean, for the for the verse, and then changes it for the chorus.
0: And there's like an effect on it too. It makes yeah, it,
1: like, so he doesn't like treat the vocal like it's. You know, oh it can't be changed or he's gotta have maintained this sort of like sand. Yeah,
0: it's like um there's so many bands in the nineties where the singer has a very particular kind of style. Right. And it's the whole band. You know, it's just it ends up becoming defining the sound of the band. Um and that's not just a nineties thing, but he doesn't fall into any of those traps. You know what I mean? He doesn't he doesn't do the nasally thing, he doesn't yarl, he doesn't doesn't scream he doesn't you know all the right. stereotypical 90s vocal styles he doesn't do any of those um, he he does his own he, he sings to the song whatever the song needs he finds a voice um, that, that works for it and tries a bunch of different things and, you, and is successful you know the majority of the time if not all the time doing that which is again especially at that time period you know this came out in 94 what 95 yeah um i think that was kind of refreshing even then for me you know it was just there were so many between billy corgan and um eddie vetter and you know cunning crows using a thousand words and the rambling style and it seemed like every band on the radio had a singer that had some kind of polarizing vocal style and uh that was not the case with with this band and i, I think i even picked up on that then
1: yeah and, and by this time you're getting into your second wave of alternative and I mean you're getting into like s- the Silverchair album mm-hmm. you know what I mean and you're getting into like Everclear and so the you've already had basically four straight years nonstop of your grunge and your alternative rock sort of ruling mm-hmm. the radio so you know and in some ways it's this is a little bit you know outside of that Really, like I said, Matthew Sweet was really the only power pop guy to sort of break through the grunge and and darker alternative rock. Although I guess Gin Blossoms, you could say. I guess I never considered them to be power pop. I guess that's a tough one because they don't necessarily have like. I always think a power pop is big on harmonies, and that's not a harmony band. Yeah, I just think of them as sort of just a, what, a rock band.
0: I guess. Yeah, I don't know. That what wrote that one
1: really is. good song. That's basically <gasps> it.
0: When was Wilco's first record?
1: Uh I'm going to say their first record was 94 cuz the first Sunvolt record was 95 and that was that followed Wilco. Wilco had the record out first, I believe. Um, I'm not sure about that. I should know that. I should have that committed to memory. Yeah, what the hell.
0: So my question on the back of that is how did you not know about this band? There were so few bands that were of that Subgenre or whatever, and you knew it pretty well when I first met you. How did this band miss your radar?
1: Actually, Wilco came out in in 95. It came out not uh, too far... When did this come out? This came out in um, April 95, and Wilco came out in March 95, so a month before.
0: So I'll make that a two-part question. How is it that you don't know about this band, and why did this band not, not find the success that even... A Wilco or Sunbolt or Jayhawk or even the Jayhawks or Posies or any of those bands we talked about. Why did they not find the success those other bands found?
1: Okay, one, I don't really think that I even knew the term power pop in the 90s, to be honest. I didn't listen to Jellyfish. I didn't listen to. No,
0: but it's like, um, like uh, I could any see the same opening stuff. for or touring with Wilco. Like, I think that would be for especially the first couple Wilco records. That wouldn't be, like, insane, would it?
1: No, but you know who they did have open for them? The Geraldine Fibbers. Do you remember that band?
0: I know the name. I don't know what they sounded like.
1: They were weird alternative country with, like, a violin player. Uh,
0: Okay. So they went. They stayed, like, with a more country.
1: Yeah, but they were even, like, weirder and more, like, uh, uh, not aggressive, but just, like, they were more, they were, like, angular. Like, they had some really weird stuff going on um and then uh what was the second question
0: (laughs) why why wasn't this band more successful we mentioned a bunch of bands that they were peers to and they are sound have similarities to that were maybe not huge but at least had bigger you know had somewhat legitimate careers
1: i still i still think that this is a little too i i don't think power pop really crosses over into the mainstream. I still think Power Pop is, is a kind of a a music nerd genre overall. And I think Power Pop is only appreciated in retrospect by a lot of people. Like, I think Big like Big Star. Big Star were yeah. completely ignored when they came out. Why, now the hell, they're one of the why most... is that?
0: It doesn't make any freaking sense.
1: Because the radio is not built for Power Pop. What's in, in the whole in point of universe. that
0: genre of music?
1: I know, but I think that you can't appreciate power pop when you're 15 years old because power pop requires a certain, like it almost like when they, when you listen to power pop, you should be given a textbook of the history of power pop. So it's because, too,
0: it's too like mature. It's a, yeah, too, because like, you're, t- you're taking format.
1: very kind of, even though it's, there's pop. And I had to explain this to uh, someone one time, like, even though it's pop, um, it's still not pop in the, I guess, radio format sense. Yeah. Where you would think of pop. Uh, But if you think about it, like, okay, 95, you've got like, the big albums are like, A Boy Named Goo, by the Goo Goo Dolls. What's the big single, name, off of that one? Mm -hmm. You've got, then you got like your, your one hit wonder bands, like Tripping Daisy, Filter, um, Everclear was, I mean, that was the first, big Everclear album, but, uh, you know, that band, you're in the middle of the British, the Brit pop, with Oasis releasing, What's the Story, Morning Glory. You got like, more, you know, space hog. I don't even know how to classify them necessarily, but just a band that was like, I think like '95 was like a weird started. It started to get weird because the Pearl Jam stopped making videos. Alice Allison Change was sort of falling apart at that point. They they would put out their last record with Lane Staley, and that was not a. I think it was a commercially it was probably successful, but like that was when they had basically like stopped touring and only played like, they had they were not touring as much as they used to. Because Lane was in such bad shape, I, mm-hmm. I think at that point, you know, I don't like. Soundgarden was into in between albums, you know. I just think it was like a weird time, and that's when you get like ba- labels are scrambling to sign everybody, which is probably why Wanderlust got signed to RCA. But unless they, I think that this, this is a band where you like you probably have to try to break them on college radio, and then get them, you know, onto some stations after that and while well, i can see college radio supporting this band i just can't see them fitting in with all those bands that you know that's the Atlantis morissette year that's the uh it's just it's not the it's not it's the right uh, year for them
0: well here's here's one hmm. in 95 they toured with an collective soul there you go why in the hell was Collective Soul big and this band wasn't?
1: Because Collective Soul wrote semi grungy alternative rock songs with a Ugh. yearly singer. Ugh. Was it this? What Collective Soul album would they have been touring for? The, the first one or the second oh, I one? I think it would have been the
0: first one, no?
1: Actually, 95, they're touring, that's the second album. Uh-huh. March 95 second album so you've got the world i know that huge single december gel you know those songs so i mean the second album was bigger than the first album they only had one single off the first record they did yeah the first single, the first album only the the only big single that i remember was shine and then they had there were two singles after that breathe and wasting time but breathe and wasting time were not as big as the second record
0: Oh uh, yeah, you're right. That second record was freaking huge. It had the big ballad on it. Because too.
1: Of the world I know, that that single was massive. So it makes sense that Wanderlust would go out because Wanderlust is like a baby band at that point. They're putting out their first record.
0: There's no justice in the world.
1: By the way, well, uh, Wanderlust was opening for Van for um, Collective Soul. Collective Soul was opening for Van Halen on the Balance Tour. <laughs> okay just so you know that
0: so by the way wanderlust is on bandcamp and you can sample and buy this full record for bandcamp for five bucks there you go and let me see here trying to see if uh what other records they have up there's a live record songs a to z trying to find this new record they put out it must be only on itunes Anyway, this record is very difficult to get. So if you're interested in it, you're either going to go Amazon or maybe this Bandcamp route. But it's not on Spotify or any service like that. You're sure shit, not going to walk into a store and find the CD. I can tell you that.
1: Just for the record, uh, Collective Soul, off the second self-titled record, had one, two, three, four, five, six singles. Five of which made it into the top three in their various Categories, whether it was like adult current or top forty mainstream or mainstream rock or what Billboard Hot 100 or whatever,
0: that was just a bad time for music, man. <laughs> just in terms of like, there I, there was just nothing else. Or or no, let me put it this way, there was there was other stuff we reviewed plenty of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't think radio knew what the hell to do.
1: Well, they were just throwing everything. And I actually just read a book. Uh, it's called I Want My MTV. It chronicles uh, basically this from the start of MTV until 1992. And it ends at 92 because that was the debut year of the real world. And they it, 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 there's sort of a prologue. Or or, a, or not a prologue because um, the prologue is before. But there's sort of an afterword about what happens after the real world. And they talk about the fact that, like, videos became... Instead of that instead of MTV like trying to play every video they could to fill space, it be and and record labels were like Okay, when they were just throwing, you know, every video they had from the Vapors and Duran Duran to, you know, whatever bands they could they could throw at them, to because they were starting to do original programming on MTV, now it was like, Well, we have one spot for every six hours to play a hip hop video You know, in one spot to play a metal video. And then we're going to put them on the specialty shows. So, you know, basically it became the record labels like fighting to get one video on per hour.
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, it was the labels that had money that could get, well, whatever video they needed to get on. So, you know, a label like Atlantic, which is putting out the Collective Soul record, is going to spend more money getting The World I Know, the video for that song, then RCA is going to be able to get a video for, you know, Wanderlust. So I'm sure that that, even though videos had started to go down in terms of importance, there were still bands that were getting played on MTV and they were still getting a lot of exposure, yeah. and that was helping them but a lot. And I think that radio, that gets left out. A this lot. is
0: also probably the last period where rock radio is, you know, really breaking singles and right. They were just all over. All the, you know, Collective Soul was just, they didn't even think about it. You know what I mean? They just, oh, new collective, another, oh, another single. Okay, here, heavy rotation. Mm-hmm. It's just none. Stop. I will never forget that era of radio. It was just, I don't know. Some of the st- of all the group music that was coming out then and the stuff that they were pushing, was just, there was such a huge gap that I don't think we've ever recovered. <laughs> I just, I think it was like, you know, uh, whatever the analogy is like that (laughs) finally set the whole damn thing over the cliff, you know, it's just, that was the end. Everybody became disillusioned and, you know, there's just a sentiment of in popular culture that rock music was done because all the crap that was on the radio was just so bad. It's just, there was so much good stuff. We've talked about a lot lot of it, um, obviously on the show that was just completely ignored.
1: Well, and plus there's Paola going on. I mean, there's all sorts of influences in terms of why things, you know, shifted and why certain bands got played. Whether it was because they sounded like the other bands that were successful, or whether it was because they got pushed by labels that were trying to make money, or whether it was, you know, for whatever reason, you know. True. And, and a lot of those programmers were probably out of their minds trying to figure out how do I go from playing the Tripping Daisies, I Got a Girl, into. Uh, a song from Alice in Chains to a song by the yeah. President of the United States yeah. to a Chili Peppers song to an Alanis Morissette. I mean, that is just, you know, that's insanity. Yeah. But, and then bands like, you know, Jawbreaker and Sunny Day Real Estate are getting squeezed out <laughs> because, yeah. you know, they're not commercial enough. So that's the 90s for you. So, Jay, let's talk about our overalls for this record um, since we went off on some tangents there. Uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and take a wander a, a, a guess here a wander guest and uh, say that you're going to give this a worthy album
0: <laughs> yeah I don't I don't have anything bad to say about this record I really don't uh, I, liked, I loved it when it came out I may even like it more now than I did then because I understand it I think in a different way than I did um, when it came out So, right, Power Pop makes sense to me now because I'm old
1: there you go Uh, I also give this a full-worthy album. You know, it's not long for being an 11-song record. Uh, It's got a lot of diversity. There are maybe one or two songs that, like, uh, on the slower variety that I don't necessarily love the way that I love the rest of the record. But, I mean, there's just... just If you like guitars, if you just listen to this just purely for the guitar playing, there's so much cool stuff going on. Uh, between the two guitar players, just if you listen to that for alone, or if you're just into like vocal harmonies or whatever, I mean, any any aspect, if you listen to it, you're gonna find that this band is doing it really well. The bass player is really good. The, the rhythm yeah. section overall is just is really tight and does a lot of interesting stuff. So yeah, this is a definitely a worthy record, and I will have to bring something good to the table for our, for our next.
0: Uh, yeah, step it up.
1: Well. I think I have because the next album we're oh. going to uh, when the next one that I pick is a, is a pretty good one we'll be getting there it's going to take a week or two but we'll be getting there
0: we'll see I don't
1: we'll know see.
0: I'm, you, uh, I'm got a pretty high average right now
1: uh, you do you're batting you're, you are batting in the uh, in the thousands right now <laughs> the very Bonds
0: of 90s rock
1: you are we're gonna to have to test you for some performance enhancing stuff
0: stuff so, i'm, I'm yeah. on plenty of stuff
1: yeah so if you like what you heard folks on this particular episode please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at itunes and of course if you'd like to request an album for us to review head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com and hit up our request a review page i want to thank everybody for listening on our various outlets stitcher radio i o Uh, All other places downloading us at iTunes. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
0: Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages.